0: Over the last seven years, I have tried every kind of marketing you can possibly imagine for my business. And I have determined over that time that direct mail has been by far the most profitable marketing channel I have ever tried. And I've spent over a million dollars just testing it out Figuring out what works and figuring out what doesn't. And through that time, I've been able to generate over a hundred deals per year in my business using direct mail. And now I've created a very small but very powerful mini course on how I utilize direct mail in my business. It explains everything I do from A to Z, and I've made this available to you absolutely free. That's right, no charge, no obligations. Just go to my website, mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail, mikesimmons.com forward slash winning direct mail to find out how you can implement my system in your business and start generating more leads through direct mail. Go check it out. It's absolutely free. I can't wait for you to try it. So if it's an area that doesn't have,
1: it has a lot of tourism that flows there, doesn't have a lot of hotels and the local, uh, the local economy, the local businesses there depend on that tourism. That's a really safe bet to go and buy a property that's gonna be a short-term rental there because you know that if they regulate in a very restrictive way against short-term rentals, it's gonna really hurt the local economy.
0: You're listening to the Just Start Real Estate Podcast. If you're serious about your real estate investing business and need real answers, you are in the right place. And now, your host, Mike Simmons. All right. Thank you for joining me on this show today. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate the fact that you're tuning in. I have another great one for you today. In fact, this one was so great that I asked them to come back for a part two. And I never do that. Usually, my interviews are one and done. I can get everything in. I feel pretty comfortable that we've covered everything in one, you know, half hour to 45 minute interview. This one went 45, and I knew we had at least another 45 to go. And so I asked them to come back. Today on the show, I have for you James Svetik and Riley Oikel. It's the last time I'm going to say their last names. I think I nailed it, Uh, uh, but they are incredible. James is one of the world's foremost Airbnb experts. He has co-authored Airbnb for Dummies, and he's helped over a 1,000 students all over the globe leverage the power of short-term rentals as a vehicle for cash flow and wealth. Uh, He is the go-to expert when it comes to performance and streamlining operations, which we know is so important when you're going to run a business, you have to have good operations. Riley is a Canadian investor uh, who has mentored and specializes in multifamily residential investing through the Burr and Joint Venture Strategy. Today, he owns a real estate portfolio worth over $8 million and has helped new investors buy their first property without wasting time and money on trial and error, which is huge. You guys know by now, you have to know. I am a huge fan of mentoring and... uh, not wasting time and money trying to figure it out on your own. And to that end, by the way, uh, as I've mentioned in past episodes recently, I have a mission of helping 100 people hit their real estate goals. And if you want to be one of those 100 that work directly with me, one-on-one, not something that I delegate out to anybody else, it's me, I will help you I will jump in and help you build your company. You just have to reach out to me. You can reach out to me at mike at mikeatjuststartrealestate.com. Or you can find me on Facebook at Mike S. Simmons, or go to Just Start Real Estate on Facebook and just say, Hey, I heard you. You're going to mentor 100 people. I want to be one of the 100. Somebody recently texted me and said they want to be one of the magic 100. I like that. That's kind of cool. So if you want to be one of the magic 100, reach out to me and let's get going. Let's get to work. One thing I like to see is results and I like to see them quickly. And so I want to dial into your business and to you and help you reach those goals quickly. So let's, let's get started. It's not too late. All right. But back to the interview, guys. uh, James and Riley were absolutely amazing. Like I said, just got into a lot of great stuff. And I knew there was way more that I wanted to cover with these guys because they're really smart. They know what they're doing. And so we we asked them to do a part two. So this is part one of the interview with James and Riley. All right, guys. Without any further ado, let's learn some stuff about short-term rentals and get educated. Here we go. James and Riley. All right, James and Riley. Welcome to Just Our Real Estate. I appreciate you guys being here. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks for having us on. I am excited to have you on. I told you a little bit before we went live uh, that I am a uh, short-term rental investor, new. Uh, Lots of newbie questions that I have for you, but I'd like to dive into some, maybe a little more sophisticated stuff that you guys I know deal with and some of the folks that you coach and mentor. And so uh, that's all great stuff that's ahead of us, but let's just set the table a little bit. If anybody hasn't heard of you guys in the past, um, just a brief background. uh, Why and how you came to being in the short-term rental game and some I know you guys, do multifamily? There's some of that stuff in your background. So, uh, just give us a little uh, a summary, maybe, of of where you guys come from. But by the way, you're both younger guys, so you've not been doing this for 35 years, right? So, how, how and uh, why did you get into this to begin with?
1: Yeah, Riley, why, why don't you start off? It'll make kind
2: of the story flow a bit better, I think. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, how did I get started? Well, yeah, I would say um, quite a few years back, I started um, being curious about real estate investing. No one in my background, like in my family or anything, had ever bought or invested in property before, and um, so it was kind of like a brand new thing for me. Um, I ran a home maintenance company, and a lot of the clients that I had were pretty well off. And I kept asking them, "I'm a young entrepreneur. What do you recommend I do?" And there was this common thread of them all mentioning, "You should do real estate investing. You should." I'm a landlord. I own rental properties, and so I, I heard all these these things. And luckily enough, actually, I, I was able to work with um, someone that owned a very large privately owned portfolio. That was my foot in the door opportunity, and he taught me really, the, you know, the, the entire business, everything from um, analyzing properties to finding those properties to you know the acquisition aspect, renovation management, creative financing, um, property management, kind of you name it, the A to Z. Um, and uh, it was it was really great. So I bought a, a few multifamilies with um, partners. So I did some joint venturing for creative financing and some better take back mortgages. I think in the States they, they call it uh, seller financing. Yep. Up here in Canada, we go by by the VTB, so the vendor take back. And okay. uh, so yeah, I did that for a few years and then bought, built a portfolio up. Um, I knew James from a um, previous kind of role that we had in, in a company. And then we ended up e- essentially collabing because I knew James had an awesome background in operations and did property management for Airbnb and uh, was very world renowned having written the book, Airbnb for Dummies and all that good stuff. <laughs> And so uh, it, it was just a matter of time before we ended up buying property together, where I had a certain background and he did it too. And then uh, and, and so we started buying short term rentals, and uh, then we started helping people with buying short term rentals too.
0: How long so, ago was it that you started working for the the private owner of the large portfolio? How many years ago? Yeah, was that?
2: yeah, it feels like twenty. Okay. Um, I think it's on on the calendar. It's six years. Okay, I always find it an interesting question when people are like, "How long have you been investing for in the space?" Because I was eighty hours plus a week, fully immersed. Like every waking moment was just like in So they were like the dog space. years,
0: basically. 100%, yeah, exactly. <laughs> So seven times six, you've been this for 42 years, man. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Because some people do it for five hours a week, right? Yeah. And so it's like, yeah, okay, yeah. how long have you been in the space for? Well, yeah. it's a big difference. Yeah, it's relative.
0: Complete like, immersion like that is totally different than dabbling on and off as a hobby for 10 years, right? So that's awesome. No, thanks. I appreciate that background and that, that uh, description. Uh, James, what about you? How did you stumble into this crazy world?
1: Yeah. So I I basically got started uh, actually, like like Riley said, managing properties for other people on Airbnb. So that was a business venture of mine. Um, Riley and I knew each other uh, because we actually both worked with the same kind of home maintenance company there. And then when I left that, I branched off and started a a property management company managing short-term rentals in downtown Toronto. And so I got lots of experience with like, listing them on Airbnb, how to optimize the property on Airbnb, how to manage them, how to manage like operations of that, like at scale with 20, 30 properties, and then got into like the online education space, got involved with a blog, ended up writing Airbnb for dummies and all this other stuff. So I was just like... of fully immersed in the short-term rental and Airbnb world, but had never actually bought and owned my own property. Um, It was always something I was interested in, but the whole idea of like, how do I find a good property to buy? How do I then finance that property? How do I deal with like maintenance and repairs and all this different stuff was just this big mystery box to me that I just had never actually opened up. Um, And so like Riley said, we got to talking one day and it was just this like really good synergy where I had all this experience with short-term rentals, but had no experience with buying properties. Riley had all this experience with buying properties, but no experience with short-term rentals. So then we kind of naturally came together and started buying short-term rental properties together. And we each had those complementary skill sets. And then like Riley said, that's kind of where we, where we took off working together from.
0: Nice. Can you give me a sense of uh, wh- where your, your short-term rental that you guys do together, your company what does it look like right now today as we as we speak
1: yeah, so right now Riley and I um, co-own and individually own and own with uh, with partners a various number of short-term rental properties. So we've got um, we've got a fair number of cottage properties, um, so like vacation-type properties that are outside of Toronto, a couple hours, um, like typically you know near the lake, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Riley's got a multifamily that's in a more urban setting, uh, setting in uh, over on the east coast of Canada. Um, and so we've got our own portfolio properties. Um, and then we also have, uh, the, uh, a business where we basically work with different investors, helping them to, you know, whether it's, whether it's a lot of long-term rental people that want to get into short-term rentals or people that just want to dip their foot into short-term rentals for the first time. Okay. We kind of help people navigate that as well.
0: Okay. So let me ask you straight straight away here. Short-term rentals, uh, was a thing before COVID. For sure, right? I mean, they, the people had short-term rentals. Airbnb existed. COVID came, and I think it kind of exploded the industry, right? Um, specifically, I, I would guess. And stop me if I'm wrong. I'm I'm saying things as if I know the facts, but stop me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think because people were concerned about being in close quarters, like in hotels, with you know they wanted the short-term rental experience so they could kind of distance and have you know the sanitation that they want. So it kind of exploded. Um COVID is sort of in our rear view mirror for the most part, I think. Is that mean that short-term rentals are going to kind of contract or become less of a thing? Is it too late? Did did people miss the the boom of short-term rentals? Is it overly saturated? Like what's the state of short-term rentals in 2023?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's very multifaceted. There's there's a lot to that. So what you just described is uh is sort of like it's sort of what happened in uh, a few different areas around North America, largely. And mostly those areas were your your sort of staycation destinations, I like to call them. So if you think about it, like everything you mentioned, people not wanting to be in hotels, not wanting to be close to each, uh, to each other, that definitely was true. The other factor that caused that boom during COVID was that people wanted to travel locally. And a lot of the places that you can travel to locally, there aren't really a lot of hotels. If you think about like where you get this this huge concentration, uh, this huge density of hotels, it's the major urban centers. The major urban centers are where everybody lives, and when they go on a staycation, they want to escape out of there. So, like New York City is a really great example. New York City. There, the short term rentals in the city didn't experience this big boom during COVID. They saw the exact opposite. You know, people weren't really traveling to New York City, but all the rural areas in like upstate New York and around New York City went gangbusters because all the people in New York wanted to get out and get away. And now instead of going and traveling down to Florida, they're going to go and just go into upstate New York because they're not going to get on a plane. It's, you know, it's just such a hassle to travel during COVID that they're just going to go somewhere they can drive too easily. So those areas were seeing like, depending on the area and the draw of it, we're definitely seeing it pull back from the 2020, 2021 numbers. Um, But surprisingly enough, it's still much better than the 2019 numbers in a lot of these markets. So you're still seeing like overall, if you graph it out over long-term, it's still, it's still increasing. It's just not doing as well as it had in this, in this boom. And then in other like kind of more urban areas, like the New York cities of the world, you've got, um, You kind of saw the opposite where they just sort of pulled back quite a bit during
0: COVID and now they're jumping back up. Gotcha. Okay. That makes total sense. All right. So I think for a lot of folks, and I'm going to throw myself in there, I'm not going to be one of those guys that say, I'm asking for a friend of mine. I'm asking for me. Not only how do you... Okay. So how do you find a good property to... Use as a short-term rental. How, how do you find it? That's the first. I'm just going to let you answer that because I have my bigger question is coming next. But where where do you guys suggest that people go, or how do they go about that if they're just starting out? Let's just say for for the sake of this question, let's say the person has experience in real estate investing. You know, maybe they're a fix and flip person, or a wholesaler, or long-term rental person. How do where do they go to find, and how do you suggest they find good properties for? Short-term rentals.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think uh, I'll be able to answer half of this, and then I think James will be able to answer the other half real well. So um, there's the market research analysis that needs to be done first. So that's your bird's eye view of essentially all the different markets, and, and so that's where James will be able to speak more about AirDNA. DNA. It's a company that we that we've uh, we've worked with to be able to get uh, you know a good bird's eye view of all the different markets. Um, but then uh, when we're actually getting a bit more micro after we figure out which market we're going to buy in. Um, how we actually find the property will be uh, the property analysis level, and so you have the market analysis level. That's kind of again the the bird's eye view, the ten thousand foot view. We use AirDNA for that, and then the more micro is going to be your property analysis. So if someone has like real estate investing experience, they are probably used to both of those levels already, and now it's just a matter of like how do you actually find this this property in the market that you've you've chosen. After your market analysis, and so you have two different buckets to choose from. One is going to be your off-market bucket. The other is going to be your on-market bucket. So if you're doing on-market, it's pretty simple. It's realtor.ca.com um, and uh, properties that are actually listed by realtors. So we we, we usually will just keep. I, I use the analogy of keeping like a line in the water. You know, um, it just makes a lot of sense to have what we call investor-friendly realtors. So those are realtors oh, we like young and hungry realtors. They don't actually have to be. Age wise young, but they're they're young, younger in the industry um, because they just have less mouths to feed. They have less people that are on on their on their pocket listing book, if that makes sense. And so we'll definitely like go after the the young and hungry realtors, the ones that are out there making a name for themselves, willing to go above and beyond, do the extra five, 10 walkthroughs and showings. And so that's the on-market idea. It's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. If you're a real estate investor, you know how all that works. The off-market as well, we use a few different um, methods and strategies to define off-market properties. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely go for like arbitrage opportunities. For example, James mentioned up there in the uh, in the Northern Ontario kind of cottage area. So the arbitrage opportunity for us up there was, and every market's different again, but for us up there, it was avoiding lakefront properties because the purchase price is like 50% more. It's insane, which makes sense. If I were looking to buy a home for me and my family on the lake, I'd, I'd probably want to be able to be but, a lake but friend. Let me ask you, let oh, me, well, cha- let, me yeah.
0: let me just challenge the thought. And here, The only reason I'm doing sure. this is I have a friend who lives locally, his entire yeah. short-term rental strategy is to buy on a lake. and. His assertion is that I can charge more. It does cost more, but I can charge a lot more. It's a premium charge to to have a short term rental on the lake. Does that make sense, or do you still think the cost is just not going to make enough sense to do that?
2: Yeah, really good question. Uh, we found from our experience that wasn't the case. Okay. But again, uh, we, we we might not have bought in the same area that that your friend did. Yeah. In in our case, it really wasn't that big of a of a of a spike. It's like we're paying an okay. extra maybe fifty percent more to get lakefront versus lake access with a five minute walk. But maybe we'd only be able to get an extra fifteen percent of a, okay. after like an average nightly rate. Yeah, in comparison to the lakefront property. Totally fair.
0: Totally fair. And as far as yeah. finding like off market stuff, I think my listeners are probably pretty pretty good about that. You know, wholesalers and and doing you know, there's a lot of things you can do to find off market. But I think what I'd like to kind of zero in on before we get into the analysis, because that was the second part of my question that I'm super interested in. Other than finding the literally finding the deals, maybe step up one level and say, how do we know the areas that we're even going to look for the on or off, off market? What do you use to determine which regions, which cities, which neighborhoods? How how do you dial that in to know what's, what's good and what's not?
1: Yeah, so I would say that... A lot of people come in thinking that there's going to be like one sort of honeypot. And, and a lot of people come in and they're looking at things for like, they want the list of like the 10 best markets in, in America to invest in for short-term rentals. <laughs> yeah. And they're thinking that like, that's going to be their golden ticket. Yeah. And what we've found, and we have the data, like we know what the 10 best, like there's there's a site called AirDNA, Riley mentioned it there. Yep. Um, it's basically a data mining website where you've got all the data on short-term rentals throughout the whole world and how they perform. We have this big enterprise level package that we get from them. That um, on a quarterly basis, they they send us the the top ranked cities in North America to invest in. But what we found from looking at all of that data is that it's really not about finding a specific like honeypot area because in any area, whether it's a really good area or a really bad area, there's going to be both good deals and bad deals. Um, it really comes down to the property. So what we focus on more is typically we'll tell someone like. Well, first off, is there somewhere that you want to purchase for whatever reason? Maybe you're local there, so you just understand the area better. It's going to be a, a, like less of a learning curve for you to understand why people are coming, how to attract more people, what the seasonal fluctuations are going to be, stuff like that. Maybe it's a place that you go to on vacation every year, and it'd be great to have sort of a lifestyle asset down there, and then you also are more familiar with the area. Um, And so we kind of start there and get a list of places and then we're going to look at regulation is going to be a big thing um, because regulation, we want to look at not just what are the regulations right now, but also where do we suspect the regulations are going to go in the future. So if it's an area that doesn't have, it has a lot of tourism that flows there, doesn't have a lot of hotels and the local uh, the local economy, the local businesses there depend on that tourism, that's a really safe bet to go and buy a property that's going to be a short-term rental there because you know that if they regulate in a very restrictive way against short-term rentals, it's going to really hurt the local economy. Um, and so you know that the local government isn't going to want to do that. Um, so we look at regulations as a, as a big part. Um, and then we look at basically just comparing average purchase price, like average sale value for uh, for a home in that area relative to how much we can see it'll do on air DNA. And this is again, just super high level bird's eye view, just to get a feel for the averages. And by looking at that, we can see, um, I'll give you an example. There's a, a pretty like ritzy part of cottage country outside Toronto. It's called the Muskokas. And properties there are easily twice as expensive as properties in the market that Riley and I invest in. That's this Kawartha Lakes area. And those properties are really expensive because they're really prestigious. Like if you're, if you have a bunch of money and you live in Toronto, you go and buy a property up there to say that you have a place in Muskoka. There's a lot of prestige that goes along with it. Okay. But if you actually look at the numbers on, on Air DNA, people aren't willing to pay for that prestige of going to a, the prestige comes with owning a cottage in Muskoka, but most people that are booking on Airbnb, they either don't know about that, or they're not willing to pay a premium for it. So you'll look at, and you'll pay twice as much in that area but the revenue is the exact same gotcha. on AirDNA. Gotcha. So we're looking for that that relationship. And so you just want to look for for areas where you can get a good ROI on an average basis. And then it's the skill of going in and finding, like I said, there's always going to be good properties and bad properties, even if you're in a good market. So then it comes down to like finding the exact property that actually is a good fit.
0: Okay. So tons of questions I'm writing as you're talking because I'm just thinking of things. You talked about regulations and and I have like kind of a, a loaded question that I've heard. This is the way to go. And I kind of want to get your opinion on it. I have heard that when it comes to regulations, you want to seek out all things being equal. You want to seek out someplace that has fully fleshed out the regulations as opposed to a place that has not set regulations yet because they tend to be more predictable. Is that, is that a fair assessment? I I
1: tend to agree with that. In most cases, I would say it's, it's, Definitely sort of, I wouldn't say a red flag if an area has no regulations, but it's a yellow flag flag for sure. Okay. You, you want to dig deeper. If you go yeah. into a market that has really well established regulations and they've got it fleshed out and it's been working for them for several years, pretty good sign that things aren't going to change dramatically. Where so, like that is there is a definite advantage to that, and I definitely do agree with that. Um, that being said, if you're looking at area in an area, it looks really good, you're really excited about, it and it doesn't have regulations. I'm not saying don't buy in that area, like just write it off completely. I'm saying dig deeper. Yeah. Um, you don't have the security of knowing that what they've been doing has been working for a long time. So you've got to look at other things like, okay, does the economy depend on short-term rentals? What what are What's the local sentiment? Do people hate it? Are they vehemently against it? Yeah. Or are they like supportive of it? Those sorts of things.
0: Okay, so my next question, this is the one that's always drove, driven me a little crazy. When it comes to regulations, how do you is it it seems so laborious to figure out what the regulations are and then for gosh sakes figuring out public sentiment of the area like where is that aggregated like how do you guys when you're gonna if, if you're gonna go into a new area that you truly don't know but maybe your data has shown it could be a good area how do you go about figuring out or how do you tell your students to figure out what the regulations are and then what you might expect based off of public sentiment in that area. How, like I know, well, I don't know, but I've asked this a hundred times to people. There is no central place where you can type in, you know, Atlanta, Georgia, boom, here are the regulations and here's what's coming down the pipe and here's what you can expect. Like nobody's done that, that I know of, but where do you guys go for that information?
1: Yeah, it's actually, I think a lot of people get, get lost just and they experience this overwhelm that you're describing. Um, and you can actually simplify it quite a bit. Do a quick Google search and specifically look for the government website. Like don't go to the to the result that comes up for like the news article by the local newspaper about short-term rentals and what might happen with regulations at some point in the future. Go to the actual government website and and look for the actual there's going to be like a PDF that you can pull up from their website that'll outline the actual regulations and it's boring, but read the actual regulation. <laughs> no one wants to do that. They wanna re- read some like off ed on what yeah. people think about the regulations. They don't wanna actually read the regulation themselves. Yeah. Do that. If you can't find it online, call the government office like your, your municipal or state government and ask them to send you the PDF. Don't ask them to tell you what the regulation are. Cause like the person you get on the phone probably doesn't know, they don't know every single regulation yeah. that the area has. Yep. Get them to actually send you that document. That's how you get a feel for what the regulations actually are. And then as far as figuring out public sentiment, I don't get too, too carried away with that. Usually the first place I like to go is to look up, um, go on Facebook and type in Airbnb hosts, XYZ city. Like Airbnb hosts, Toronto, Ontario, and um and just look for a Facebook group that people in it that are hosts. And usually, if you scour through that and then just like message a few people that seem to be contributing a lot, that seem to be passionate about and kind of tuned in, and just talk to them and see what that what how things are going there. That's sort of like the if like if every different op ed that you would find online and every single post is like that's your data points the people in that group tend to be the data aggregators. They're the people that have already absorbed all that content, fleshed it out, and that now they have an opinion about it. And so I like to go to them because it just cuts down me having to go and look at every single different article.
0: Yeah, I like that. You you also mentioned Air, uh, DNA, which I'm familiar with, and I think a lot of people who are in this world know about. Uh, one qualifying question, are you guys, are you guys connected to them somehow professionally or anything, or is it just a resource that you use?
1: Uh, Like we have no financial incentive for working with them by any means, um, but we pay them a bunch
0: of money so that we can get a whole bunch of data for them. So we work with them very intimately, but like no financial incentive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to ask probably a loaded question. I think I can uh, assume your answer, but how reliable is the data from AirDNA? Could someone, or do you suggest someone when they're doing the actual analysis, property analysis, that they use D- air AirDNA as their Bible? Or do you suggest other sources that they use to determine vacancy rates, nightly rates, all those kind of things? Do you just go straight to AirDNA and that's, that's it? Or are there, are there other places?
1: Um, there are other places. So there's uh, like the other main two are all the rooms and then Mashvisor a little bit. Um, all the rooms is is good. They've got a bit of work to do. So I work relatively close to with their team as well. Love the software. Love the team there. Um, but I find that their their user interface just isn't quite where it needs to be. Okay. Um, so I like them. Um, and I would use them if they have data for your area. Okay. AirDNA Air DNA is is my go to, and I would say that the data is really solid as long as you um as long as you know how to use it. So it's definitely one of those things where it's like. It's a really, really great tool, but if you don't know how to use it, you can be led astray. And I see people posting all the time, but like AirDNA projected that my property would do a hundred thousand dollars this year and it's only doing 60. Um, And my question is always, when you say AirDNA projected that, what do you mean? Because like AirDNA doesn't tell you how much your property will do. It tells you how much other properties in the area are doing. And so you had to infer from that data how much your property would do, and you probably inferred incorrectly. So, um, like one mistake that's a really common one I see people making all the time is they'll go into some small little market that only has like twelve properties that are good comps to the one they're looking at, and they'll they'll base their uh, their uh, projection of how well their property that they're looking at will do based on those twelve comps. Well, and, the, and usually they'll use the average of those 12 comps. What they'll fail to realize is that one of those 12 comps is doing astronomically well. And the other 11 are doing like really mediocre. But when you look at that as an average, it looks like the average is doing a lot better, and realistically it's just one property, one outlier that's pulling the data set up. So things like that, you need to know how to look at the data the right way and use it as a uh, use it the right way as a tool in order to get what you want out of it. So I'd say the data is good, but the fault I see it a lot of the time is that people just don't use the data the right way. And so they get led astray because of that.
0: Got it. Okay. So let's dive into that a little bit. And by the way, I'm looking at the clock here. I should have known. I could talk to you guys for three hours about this because I have so many questions, but let me just try to see how much we can get through because this is um, good stuff. So on the property analysis side, let's just say we found the market. We, talked, we, we got into the city website. Regulations look great. There's a need uh, there's tourism, not a lot of hotels. It's awesome, right? On paper, everything's good so far. We find a property. What, can you give me sort of a, a checklist, high level? I know that we could probably talk for an hour just on this one subject, but how, how can you guys give, a, give some um, feedback as far as h- what is the process that you go through for dialing in and determining, this? yes, this property at this price should perform well.
2: Yeah, I, I think I can jump on jump in on that one, and then uh, this could be a three hour answer, but yeah. I'll, I'll definitely keep it down to like you know maybe maybe a few minutes here. Okay. okay. But we'll uh, we'll use like three different levels. So just the, I guess the first thing is like understanding that when you're looking through a bunch of listings, like at any point in time on realtor.com, there's going to be thousands of listings available, and so the question is, how do we actually siphon through those, filter through them, in a way that's both effective and efficient because we, you can't spend like two hours analyzing every single listing on realtor.com. And so, how, how do you pick the ones to actually pour a bit more time into, to spend more time into and to be more effective on, right? Um, so, so that that's kind of like the, your level one is like really being able to, to understand what to look at. Honestly, the, the first thing that we'll do is Figure out okay. Well, how much do we do? We suspect that certain types of properties will do revenue-wise, and so that comes from what James just said. That's that. That's going to come from doing your preliminary research around the market, understanding what properties are doing, understanding like how to siphon through that data too, and and so then you you kind of figure out okay, your different property types. What what's the purchase price that I've been pre-approved for? So that's something you've already figured out ahead of time. And so you kind of have the rough idea of like how much can you purchase a property for. And now you also know within that purchase price what types of properties you'll be able to buy. Um that could be the amount of beds, baths, square footage, how updated the property is, if it's distressed, all those other various variables at play. So you already have all that work done prior to. And now going into analyzing, we have like level one. And so level one is we're going to take what we assume, what we're Projecting or predicting the property doing revenue in in one year, and we're going to divide it by, um, or, or or sorry, um, in one month we're gonna, going to divide it by the purchase price, whatever the list price is. We actually don't know what the purchase price is, but whatever we uh, what, whatever we think the purchase price will be, because yeah. sometimes the property is listed for a million, but based on the bidding wars in the area, maybe we think it's going to go for one point one. Okay, and so we're going to run the math on that. All right, so so the pre- predicted purchase price. And so this is a quick little equation. I call it paper napkin math. It's not perfect, but it works a lot of the time. And so you just take whatever you think that monthly revenue will be for the property on average, divide it by what you predict the purchase price to be. If it's equal to or more than 1.5%, then we'll go ahead and we're going to spend some more time um, looking into it. So this is actually commonly referred to as the 1% rule for long-term rentals. Yep. We've just revamped it for short-term rentals. And the reason why is there's just way more revenue naturally, but there's also more expenses. Yep. So on average, it all works itself out, right? Yep. Yep. That's our level one analysis. Level two will be a bit more detailed. Like Level one should really take like if you have some quick math and you already have your preliminary research done, shouldn't be any more than like 30 seconds to do some quick math on a calculator for your level one. And so that's a quick way to look through all the listings, right? Um, and, and so the next level is going to be our, our like robust or you know whatever spreadsheet you have like a, a very thorough spreadsheet where you're going to be plugging in all the numbers. So you're going to be plugging in um, you know, all the expenses, what those are, the revenue, figuring out your cash on cash ROI, your total ROI, all these other metrics that we look for. And, um, and you have to know your, your this is something I think a lot of people get tripped up on like when we're working with people that are beginners in this space, they usually will analyze based on emotion. They're like, I know the area well. I have a good feeling about this property. I think it's going to do well. Yeah. That's That That just doesn't work as an investor. Yeah. You need to be very, very analytical and take the emotions out of it. And so what we'll do is we'll go in to our analysis knowing we, we're looking for a property that needs to hit these criteria. And so every investor needs to have standards. Um, and based on those standards, well, you need to know um, what it's going to take to hit them because if someone needs to hit a 40% total ROI, well, it's like, it's going to take you probably a bit longer to find that property than it will for someone else that has a 15% total ROI standard. But going in with those is important. We usually will use like a 15% cash and cash ROI as a minimum and like a 25% uh, total ROI as a minimum as well. So those are two of the metrics. That that happens at level two and then simply level three is going to be doing a, a uh, a, a much deeper dive level two is usually about 20 to 30 minutes and level three will be maybe like an hour. That's when we're going to get the as is comps. Um, if we're doing a renovation, the after repair value comps from our realtor. And then we, we're also, this is a, get, a been, uh, again, a bit different for short-term rentals, but getting comps on AirDNA. So finding like uh, comps that either support or might not support the property that we're looking to buy.
0: Is that level right, three analysis and, um, where you look at the outlier and you realize, oh, there's this one property that's just going crazy and it's it's the outlier, and so you have to maybe disregard it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. We're going we're we're going much deeper in error DNA and, and really um really stress testing the data um because we've created like a very guesstimate approximation at yeah. level one for what we think the property will do for you know, monthly average revenue. And uh, and now level three, it's like okay, we we need to be sure on this one because after we do level three, we're usually putting in an offer immediately after. Okay, if the numbers make sense.
0: You guys mentioned arbitrage, and I wanna I wanna I'm gonna go back to the like the data, but you mentioned yeah. arbitrage. What part of your uh y- your personal plan and what you kind of teach other people? is the arbitrage model right renting a property from an owner and then you're renting it out as a short term but you're you rent it as a long term you're renting it out as short term how how much of that do you guys get into is that a thing for you
1: yeah, I'll, I'll jump in on that. So it, it could be a little bit confusing because when Riley mentioned arbitrage, uh, he meant it as like the pure definition of the word arbitrage, where we're talking about like finding uh, finding some asset that's undervalued and where we can where we can squeeze more value okay. out of it by okay. using it a different way. Got it. So like when we find you know lake access properties, people that are buying cottages want lake front because they can park their boat there and yeah. they can you know have lake front whereas lake access, not super desirable, but as a short-term rental, we can squeeze more value out of it. Okay. The kind of short-term rental definition of, of arbitrage, like often that word gets thrown around for exactly what you mentioned, which is like rent a property, then flip it onto Airbnb. Yeah, Um, We don't do any of that anymore. So I did that a little bit when I was first getting started and quickly realized that when you build a, a business doing rental arbitrage, you're kind of building this house of cards. And it mm-hmm. can be a very profitable house of cards, but it is definitely a house of cards because yeah. if if you don't own the asset, you don't ultimately control it, uh, meaning that the landlord can kick you out, um, city can regulate against you, and then you don't have any equity and you don't have any backup plan. So we quickly got out of that and we don't do any of that anymore. Okay,
0: fair enough. That's that's good clarification. Thank you for that. I appreciate it because I did misunderstand. All right, so let me ask you again, I'm, I'm just, I'm coming at you from this like, real estate experience, but not short-term rental experience. If I'm going into this and I say I want to build a short-term rental portfolio, right? I'm not doing a one-off. Do you have any guidance for people? And I know you've done both and probably do both to go the cottage or even glamping route versus destination, you know, regular, like standard single family home kind of a thing. I know that I know a lot of people who buy them in like, Neighborhoods in just any town, in just a neighborhood, right? And it's like that's a short-term rental, and it seems to be working for them on some level. Like, where do you guys suggest if if you just want to hit the most likely path for success? And maybe this is a poor framing of the of the question, but bear with me. I just want to do this. I want to have a portfolio of you know maybe ten to fifteen to twenty short-term rentals, great income. I don't want to take huge risks, but I want to make sure I'm maximizing everything and kind of hitting as much out of the park as I can. Do I go glamping? Do I go cottage? Do I go big house in the city where everyone goes from around the world? Like, how do you tell people to sort of like focus their their attention? Yeah. Yeah.
2: I'll I'll give you my my thought and maybe James you, you can add in as well. I uh it like the portfolio one is an interesting one because if you have the liquidity, and again, it depends on the person, right? If they have the liquidity and the mortgage capability, I would honestly be leaning towards like more of a multifamily sort of setup and finding a market that supports a multifamily because it just scales so well. Scales so well with economies of scale. Okay. And and so, you know, James and I are pretty fascinated this year on like this whole boutique hotel, um, like a 10 to 50 room um, hotel that we'd want to buy with a front desk and they have maybe like a little restaurant or cafe in there. And, and so, um, I actually got addicted here recently. This is a side thing, but to motel makeovers, it's a real good Netflix show. And so it will show it to them, but it's a, it's a really good one buying like bed bug hotels, essentially, or motels and then flipping them over. And so, you know, there'd be an idea to do something like that. if, If you're looking to build a portfolio, um, of listings, because each of those rooms could technically be listed on Airbnb. And so you, sure, you can have your own website for that motel or boutique hotel. Um, but, but realistically, like you can also use the elephants in the room, like the Airbnbs, the VRBOs to to get some extra traffic for marketing.
0: Let me ask you this, because so, I've heard people talk yeah. about this boutique hotel um, situation, like you're talking about. If I'm, okay, I'm just trying to, put my, and I really want the rest of the answer because I'm super interested in that answer. And I want to hear um, uh, both of you. But so I'm just thinking as someone who would rent an Airbnb, Part of the reason I would want to rent it is to get out of the hotel feel and have a dedicated dwelling area. So how much, and this is again, loaded question, because you're super excited about it. So obviously it's a good way to go. How much of that are you hurting the, what you can charge because it's in a hotel, right? Uh, how is it? Is it just like, it makes sense financially in data, like it, it just the ROI, it all is good. Or do you think that's truly what people want and they're gonna be drawn to that long term?
2: It's a really good question. My my thought on the um the idea of doing like a either a, a motel or say a boutique hotel is that we're really catering to the the one, two, maybe three or four person occupancy, whereas when we're doing like more cottages or larger properties, we're really catering to A demographic that doesn't really compete directly against motels or boutique hotels, and so we're out of that kind of hospitality space of like motels and hotels because now we're able to cater to the six, the eight, the ten, the twelve, even some of our cottages are sixteen people, and so um, it's just a different demographic, and so yeah, that's the other thing to to keep in mind is who's the guest avatar that we're targeting that we're going after, right? And what what's the size of their group? Got it.
0: Awesome.
2: And I can, I can share as well, like on, like
1: you mentioned, uh, I think a lot of people look at this um, and they see Airbnb, Airbnb has built this like real brand around what it is and what it's all about. And Airbnb really is more and more becoming all about the stays that you just described, you know, the, the larger groups that are getting to a house that are going for some kind of unique experience. Uh, But at the end of the day, Airbnb is just an OTA. They're an online travel agent. They're, they're a website people can go to, to book properties. And so when you When you buy a a property that fits really well with Airbnb's uh, demographic of who books with them, you can just list it on Airbnb and do really well. So like a lot of our cottages, we don't even expand them out to other OTAs, we just leave them just on Airbnb because they do really, really well on Airbnb alone. Whereas with a, a play like Riley's describing there with the Boutique Hotel, you're probably not going to be able to rely on just Airbnb to drive your bookings. You're probably going to want to also list it on Booking.com. You're probably want to also going to get it up on Expedia. You're probably also going to want to have your own direct booking website. So there's a difference in the way that you would go about running it to match up with that difference in demographic of who's actually going there.
0: Got it. I got it. That that's great. Okay, so uh, it, it, you brought it up, and I think it's a good um, way to a good segue here. Airbnb appears to be most interested in promoting experiences, experience stays. So when I talk about these people that I know more than one person who will buy a three-bedroom brick ranch in a subdivision and make it and put it on Airbnb, and some of them do pretty well. I mean, well is a relative statement. What does that mean? You know, a lot of these are like they buy them for one hundred fifty thousand. They put a little money into it, and they're cash flowing, net cash flow a thousand dollars a month, right? And they're like, I'm going to do ten of these, and I'm going to make ten thousand dollars a month, and you know, whatever. W- when you're when you're advising folks, when when you're talking to the people that in your in your program who are asking, do you do you tell them a maybe the types of if they're going to go for single family, they're not going to do boutique hotel or multifamily do you give them some generalized uh, direction on what they might want to think about doing uh, in terms of like even bedrooms? Like, well, how do you guys feel about a two-bedroom house, right? And I'm sure they all can work. But if I'm just sort of like saying, let's 80-20 this, um, what do you, I guess, let me ask it a different way. What do you avoid? What, what do you tell people? Eh, it, it could work, but it's not worth the risk when there's so many other opportunities. Maybe don't Look at these types of properties. Is there something that you could say there?
1: Yeah, I think eighty twenty is a good way to look at. It. There is a really good kind of rule of thumb that, again, doesn't apply everywhere. but it is a good kind of eighty twenty if you want to just break it down and have an easy way to look at it is that with when you're investing in multifamily, the idea is that like multifamily long term, the idea is that it's better because you're paying for one roof one HVAC, like one of all those other those other things. And you're getting more units and therefore more rent. And the same sort of thing can be, the same sort of general idea can be applied to short-term rentals when you look at one bedroom versus two bedroom versus three bedroom. So if you look at most markets, you'll be able to, what we do is we like to pull the data on one bedroom, two bedroom, three bedroom, four bedroom, and five bedroom in a given market. And we'll, we'll identify what we call the gap. In every given market, there's going to be one where you see like, okay, one bedrooms do this much, two bedrooms do this much, three bedrooms do this much. And then, whoa, when you add that fourth bedroom, suddenly it just shoots right up. And, and then when you look at the average purchase price, it doesn't shoot up like that between three and four bedrooms because you're not buying a whole second house or yeah. another 25%. Like you're just literally buying a place that has one extra bedroom. So the purchase price doesn't go up massively, but the income can because suddenly you can accommodate a larger group, which means they're willing to pay more uh, because they can split the cost amongst different people. And you also can cater to a huge, uh, a huge amount more demand because in that four bedroom house, you have access to the groups of 10, nine, eight, seven, six, all the way down, whereas like a one bedroom place, it can only accommodate the groups of one or two people. So there's a whole bunch of demand that you just can't access. So that's that's kind of the 80-20 of it, um, I would say. like, The easiest thing to do is just in your market, look at those different stats and see where that gap happens, where the revenue shoots up, but the purchase price of the home doesn't.
0: Yeah, brilliant, I love that. I love that. All right, guys, we're running out of time, and I gotta be honest with you, I I can't say I never have done this, but I can't remember ever doing it is there any chance I can get you guys to come back on for a second interview because there's a list of things I want to talk about that we did not get to and we could make this a two-parter. If you're cool with that, I'm I'm sort of putting you on the spot because we're still recording. But uh, would you guys be willing to come back and just sort of like Continue part two of this, where I, because I want to talk about the financing side of it. I want to talk about the management side of it, the software side of it, management versus doing it yourself, listings and the science behind what is, what do you do on a listing to make it stand out or how do you, you know, not get lost in the shuffle? Are you guys, are you guys cool with doing that? Coming back on in in a, in a short time here to do a, a second part?
1: Yeah, 100%. Okay,
0: cool. We'll set it up offline. But be- before we go here, talk to me a little bit. I've referenced it a few times, but you help folks do this more than just getting on podcasts and just dumping value all over the place like you did today. Uh, you guys do this in a more formal way. Can you talk about that a little bit? How can people work with you if they already know they don't need part two? They just know they got to work with you guys.
1: Yeah, for sure. The The best place to find out more about us is uh, bnbinnercircle.com. Um, that's the website with everything that we do coaching wise. You can look up Riley or I on social media, like Instagram or Facebook as well. But if you want to learn more, kind of get access to a whole bunch of our, our free content, check out more of what we do on the on the coaching side. Um, that's just at bnbinnercircle.com.
0: Got it. And we'll have that in the show notes. It's pretty easy to remember if you're on a treadmill. I'm sure that's easy. But if not, we'll put it in the show notes, um, guys. It's been a blast, and and it's always I love interviewing folks where they're actually you're talking about something that I don't know a lot about and I'm generally curious because I want to, I want to have that portfolio of 10 15 20 or more right depending on how it goes and uh, I know I know for a fact because I've lived this and I also coach in people in different areas of real estate uh, there's just no way around it if you want to do something right the first time save money and time you, you get a coach, you find a mentor, you find a mastermind, whatever it takes, right? You get yourself plugged into a network or some folks that can help you shortcut all of the mistakes. And that's exactly what you guys do. So uh, I'm super excited to have this conversation. I'm really excited that you guys are willing to come back and do a, a part two where we can hit some stuff that we didn't have any time for today because I'm, I'm just geeking out on the stuff you've already talked about. So uh, thanks for being here. I look forward to talking to you guys soon. We'll set that up. We'll get it in the calendar so we can do that. And uh, anything before we go, any, any, any last words, any parting words?
2: I just say, yeah, thanks for having us on, Mike. I really yeah. appreciate it. It's been a blast. No, it's Looking been Looking forward fun. to part
0: Yeah, yeah me too, yeah. guys. And I appreciate you doing that. I put you on the spot, but thank you for agreeing to it on the spot. And we'll get that set up. All right, guys, we'll see you next time. All right, there you have it. Part one of my interview with James and Riley. Uh, it was only intended to be a one-part interview, like pretty much all my interviews. Uh, but I think there's a lot more to cover with these guys. And uh, I really want to tap into their knowledge. I really do. I'm just personally, I'm interested and hopefully you guys enjoyed what they had to say. Uh, these guys are pretty smart, and uh, they definitely know what they're doing. And I've just got a lot more questions for them. And hopefully you guys know that there's some value in bringing them back and asking stuff about financing and the, the software behind the management and whether or not you need to hire a managing company to do it. And how do you create great listings and you know just how do you set up your property? and get all the furniture in there, like all these things I want to ask them. So it's a whole interview. There's no way I could have crammed that in the last few minutes. So I'm excited to talk to these guys again. Uh, They'll be back in our next episode after this one. Hopefully that's the one they'll be in. So we're going to do that as soon as possible. All right, guys, exciting stuff. I've been doing this since 2008. I still get excited when I'm talking to somebody who really knows their stuff and can help me be better. Hope you guys feel the exact same way. We'll see you next time with part two with James and Riley. See you next time.